Chapter Five, Part One of the Pit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. That year, the spring burst over Chicago in a prolonged scintillation of pallid green. For weeks, continually, the sun shone. The lake, after persistently cherishing the grays and bitter greens of the winter months, and the rugged white caps of the northeast gales, mellowed at length, turned to a softened azure blue, and lapsed by degrees to an unruffled calmness, encrusted with innumerable coruscations. In the parks, first of all, the buds and earliest shoots asserted themselves. The horse-chestnut burgeons burst their sheaths to spread into trefoils and flame-shaped leaves. The elms, maples, and cottonwoods followed. The sooty blackened snow upon the grass plats in the residence quarters had long since subsided, softening the turf, filling the gutters with rivulets. On all sides one saw men at work laying down the new sod in rectangular patches. There was a delicious smell of ripening in the air, a smell of sap once more on the move, of humid earths disintegrating from the winter rigidity, of twigs and slender branches stretching themselves under the returning warmth, elastic once more, straining in their bark. On the north side, in Washington Square, along the Lakeshore Drive, all up and down the Lincoln Park Boulevard, and all through Erie, Huron, and Superior Streets, through North State Street, North Clark Street, and LaSalle Avenue, the minute sparkling of green flashed from treetop to treetop, like the first kindling of dry twigs one could almost fancy that the click of igniting branch tips was audible as whole beds of yellow-green sparks defined themselves within certain elms and cottonwoods every morning the sun invaded earlier the east windows of laura dearborn's bedroom every day at noon it stood more nearly overhead above her home every afternoon the checkered shadows of the leaves thickened upon the drawn curtains of the library Within doors, the bottle-green flies came out of their lethargy and droned and bumped on the panes. The double windows were removed, screens and awnings took their places, the summer pieces were put into the fireplaces. All of a sudden, vans invaded the streets, piled high with mattresses, rocking chairs, and bird cages. The inevitable spring moving took place and these furniture vans alternated with great trucks laden with huge elm trees on their way from nursery to lawn families and trees alike submitted to the impulse of transplanting abandoning the winter quarters migrating with the spring to newer environments taking root in other soils sparrows wrangled on the sidewalks and built ragged nests in the interstices of cornice and coping in the parks one heard the liquid modulations of robins. The florists' wagons appeared, and from house to house, from lawn to lawn, iron urns and window boxes filled up with pansies, geraniums, fuchsias, and trailing vines. The flower beds, stripped of straw and manure, bloomed again, and at length the great cottonwoods shed their berries like clusters of tiny grapes over street and sidewalk. At length came three days of steady rain, followed by cloudless sunshine, 
and full-bodied vigorous winds straight from out the south. Instantly the living embers in treetop and grass plat were fanned to flame. Like veritable fire the leaves blazed up. Branch after branch caught and crackled, even the driest, the deadest, were enfolded in the resistless swirl of green. Treetop ignited treetop, the parks and boulevards were one smother of radiance. From end to end and from side to side of the city, fed by the rains, urged by the south winds, spread billowing and surging the superb conflagration of the coming summer. Then, abruptly, everything hung poised. The leaves, the flowers, the grass, all at fullest stretch, stood motionless, arrested, while the heat, distilled as it were from all this seething green, rose like a vast pillar over the city, and stood balanced there in the iridescence of the sky, moveless and immeasurable. From time to time it appeared as if this pillar broke in the guise of summer storms, and came toppling down upon the city in tremendous detonations of thunder and weltering avalanches of rain. But it broke only to reform, and no sooner had the thunder ceased, the rain intermitted, and the sun again came forth, than one received the vague impression of the swift rebuilding of the vast invisible column that smothered the city under its bases, towering higher and higher into the rain-washed, crystal-clear atmosphere. Then the aroma of wet dust, of drenched pavements, musty, acute, the unforgettable exhalation of the city streets after a shower, pervaded all the air, and the little outdoor activities resumed again under the dripping elms and upon the steaming sidewalks. The evenings were delicious. It was yet too early for the exodus northward to the Wisconsin lakes, but to stay indoors after nightfall was not to be thought of. At six o'clock, all through the streets of the neighborhood of the Dearborns' home, one could see the family groups sitting out upon the front stoop. Chairs were brought forth, carpets and rugs unrolled from the steps. From within, through the opened windows of drawing-room and parlor, came the brisk gaiety of pianos. The sidewalks were filled with children clamoring at tag, I spy, or run sheep run. Girls in shirt-waists and young men in flannel suits promenaded to and fro. Visits were exchanged from stoop to stoop. Lemonade was served, and claret punch. In their armchairs on the top step, elderly men, householders, capitalists, well-to-do, with large stomachs covered with white waistcoats, their straw hats upon their knees, smoked very fragrant cigars in silent enjoyment, digesting their dinners, taking the air after the grime and hurry of the business districts. It was on such an evening as this, well on toward the last days of the spring, that Laura Dearborn and Page joined the Cresslers and their party, sitting out like other residents of the neighborhood on the front steps of their house. Almost every evening nowadays the Dearborn girls came thus to visit with the Cresslers. Sometimes Page brought her mandolin. Every day of the warm weather seemed only to increase the beauty of the two sisters. Page's brown hair was never more luxuriant, the exquisite coloring of her cheeks never more charming, the boyish outlines of her small straight figure, immature and a little angular as yet, 
never more delightful. The seriousness of her straight-browed, grave, gray-blue eyes was still present, but the eyes themselves were, in some indefinable way, deepening, and all the maturity that as yet was withheld from her undeveloped little form looked out from beneath her long lashes. But Laura was veritably regal, very slender as yet, no trace of fullness to be seen over hip or breast, the curves all low and flat. Yet she carried her extreme height with tranquil confidence, the unperturbed assurance of a chatelaine of the days of feudalism. Her coal-black hair, high-piled, she wore as if it were a coronet. The warmth of the exuberant spring days had just perceptibly mellowed the even paleness of her face, but to compensate for this all the splendor of coming midsummer nights flashed from her deep brown eyes. On this occasion she had put on her coat over her shirt-waist, and a great bunch of violets was tucked into her belt. But no sooner had she exchanged greetings with the others and settled herself in her place than she slipped her coat from her shoulders. It was while she was doing this that she noted for the first time Landry Court, standing half in and half out of the shadow of the vestibule behind Mr. Cressler's chair. "'This is the first time he has been here since, uh, since that night.' Mrs. Cressler hastened to whisper in Laura's ear. "'He told me about, well, he told me about what occurred, you know. He came to dinner tonight, and afterwards the poor boy nearly wept in my arms. You never saw such penitence.' Laura put her chin in the air with a little movement of incredulity, but her anger had long since been a thing of the past. Good-tempered, she could not cherish resentment very long but as yet she had greeted Landry only by the briefest of nods. "'Such a warm night,' she murmured, fanning herself with part of Mr. Cressler's evening paper. "'And I never was so thirsty.' "'Why, of course!' exclaimed Mrs. Cressler. "'Isabel,' she called, addressing Miss Gretry, who sat on the opposite side of the steps, "'isn't the lemonade near you? Fill a couple of glasses for Laura and Page.' Page murmured her thanks, but uh, Laura declined. "'No, uh, just plain water for me,' she said. "'Isn't there some inside? Mr. Court can get it for me, can't he?' Landry brought the pitcher back, running at top speed and spilling half of it in his eagerness. Laura thanked him with a smile, addressing him, however, by his last name. She somehow managed to convey to him in her manner the information that, uh, though his offence was forgotten, their old-time relations were not, for one instant, to be resumed. Later on, while Page was thrumming her mandolin, Landry whistling a second, Mrs. Cressler took occasion to remark to Laura, "'I was reading the Paris letter in the Inter-Ocean today, and I saw Mr. Corthell's name on the list of American arrivals at the Continental. I guess,' she added, "'he's going to be gone a long time.' I wonder sometimes if he will ever come back. A fellow with his talent, I should imagine, would find Chicago, well, less congenial, anyhow, than Paris. But just the same, I do think it was mean of him to break up our play by going. I'll bet a cookie that he wouldn't take part any more just because you wouldn't. He was just crazy to do that love scene in the fourth act with you. 
and when you wouldn't play of course he wouldn't and then everybody seemed to lose interest with you two out jay took it all very decently though don't you think laura made a murmur of mild assent he was disappointed too continued mrs cressler i could see that he thought the play was going to interest a lot of our church people in his sunday school but he never said a word when it fizzled out is he coming tonight well i declare said laura how should i know if you don't jadwin was an almost regular visitor at the cresslers during the first warm evenings he lived on the south side and the distance between his home and that of the cresslers was very considerable it was seldom however that jadwin did not drive over he came in his double-seated buggy his negro coachman beside him the two coach dogs rex and rocks trotting under the rear axle his horses were not showy nor were they made conspicuous by elaborate boots bandages and all the other solemn paraphernalia of the stable yet men upon the sidewalks amateurs breeders and the like men who understood good stock never failed to stop to watch the team go by heads up the check rein swinging loose ears all alert eyes all alight the breath deep strong and slow and the stride machine-like even as the swing of a metronome thrown out from the shoulder to knee snapped on from knee to fetlock from fetlock to pastern finishing squarely beautifully with a thrust of the hoof planted an instant then as it were flinging the roadway behind it snatched up again and again cast forward on these occasions jadwin himself inevitably wore a black slouch hat suggestive of the general of the civil war a gray dust overcoat with a black velvet collar and tan gloves discolored with the moisture of his palms and all twisted and crumpled with the strain of holding the thoroughbreds to their work he always called the time of the trip from the buggy at the cressler's horse block his stopwatch in his hand and as he joined the groups upon the steps he was almost sure to remark tugs were all loose all the way from the river they pulled the whole rig by the reins my hands are about dislocated End of chapter 5, part 1